welcome back guys to another episode of the Health Mastery Show. I'm your host as usual, Adam MacDonald, and on today's episode I have on with me Dr. Brandon Roberts. So Brandon is a, a director of research and education at The Strength Guys. He's also a coach there. He has a master's in human performance. He has a PhD in muscle biology and he's also a fellow competitive natural bodybuilder. So in today's episode, what we specifically talk about are is a release a recent paper that he released along with his co-authors Peter Fishin, Eric Helms and Eric Trexler, both of them Eric's both Eric's have already been on this podcast before. Um and the paper is Nutritional Recommendations for Physique Athletes, which was uh, released earlier this year. So it is an updated version from a paper that was released in 2014 and it's basically recommendations for those who want to step on stage in terms of their overall diet. So what's the best dieting strategy? How do you set up your diet? Macronutrient approaches, uh, diet breaks, supplements, etc. in order to bring the best physique to the stage as possible. So if you do want to check that out before you actually listen to this podcast or, or pause and check it out on Google, it's it's open access. You just type in nutritional recommendations for physique athletes. You'll get that uh, paper and you can read through it. It's fairly easy read. You don't need to be very scientific to read it. And we just discuss everything in that paper and it asks some specific questions relating to that. Um, I would really appreciate if you could, if you were listening to this podcast, if you screenshotted it and then put it on Instagram or Facebook or whatever and tagged both myself and Brandon. So Brandon's Instagram handle is uh, at brob underscore 21 and mine is at adammac192, so that's A-D-A-M-M-C-192. And just tag us with what you've learned or what you are learning from this episode. And that will be of great help uh, just to get the podcast out there and share. But if you uh, do have any questions, you can always reach either of us. You can get Brandon at his Instagram. You can get me at Instagram and my handle is there. Or you can email me. Uh, I'm more than happy to help. But hopefully you enjoy the show. And as, as usual, any feedback is always welcomed. And of course, ratings and reviews as well. Brandon, thank you for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me, Adam. Appreciate. Yeah, and it's, um, it's been it's been great to have you on because um, I've been following some of your work for for quite a long time. Um, you've recently released a paper along with Eric Helms, Eric Trexler, and Peter Fishin. Eric, the two Erics have actually been on this podcast before. Haven't yet got Peter on, um, but please tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into uh, bodybuilding and research and and everything that you do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. Um, it all started in undergrad and I was a, um, I'll give you the longer version because I know you like long podcasts. Um, the, I did an undergrad in molecular biology and I really liked molecular biology, did, um, kind of some keto stuff back then, way back then, but I didn't see myself as someone who wanted to stay in that field. And so I kind of searched around and I was like, all right, how can I use what I've learned? to apply it to something that I want to do. And at the time, um, typical college guy, right? I wanted to get bigger, stronger, faster, you name it, right? Become an athlete. And I had a, a pretty well-rounded sport background. So I played football, soccer, baseball, things like that. Um, but I found a couple labs that did muscle biology where I did my undergrad. And so I reached out and I said, hey, um, I have this molecular background seems like you do molecular biology in muscle. Maybe we can work something out. Um, did my master's in human performance. 
that was a nice two-year um, stop to really find out if I wanted to do A, research, but B, muscle biology, or if I wanted to go more applied, right, more exercise, science, the typical stuff that you see, uh, strength conditioning. Um, and so I, I thought, well, let's let's use this expertise. Let's, um, let's dive in even deeper. So I did my PhD in, in muscle biology, but it was focused all on muscle loss, right? And I still wasn't quite interested in muscle loss as much as I was in muscle hypertrophy. Like it's really important from a disease perspective, from a um, epidemiological perspective, uh, but that's just not where I was super interested. So I finished my PhD. Um, during my PhD, I really got into bodybuilding. So that's when I did um, my, I did a season in 2016 and then that was the end of my PhD, and then I recently did a, a season in 2019. But after my PhD, I was like, okay, let's take this to the next level. And I went to did a postdoc, so a kind of post-PhD training type transition period, um, and just finished that up in the fall, late fall. Um, so it's, it's almost like I compete at the end of every major chapter of my life. I think I'm going to try to keep that going. <laughs> um, but so recently I've transitioned to more of a um, kind of lecture type, like beginning professor position um, where I can start to do my own research. I have a bunch of different projects going on, some in animals, some in humans, um, some with you know, army cadets, things like that. And I'm just kind of branching out now to see where I best fit um, in the exercise science research. So that's my background um, scientifically. And if we wanted to get into the, the other side of it, we can too. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I mean, we just briefly talked about it just before we start recording that I'm currently doing a master's and I didn't have that undergrad in science. And I find that's the the biggest struggle for me is like understanding, um, you know, the very kind of hard sciences um, that are very important. And I think that that's what a lot of people miss when they kind of share science. We're, we're kind of in this information age, I guess, where... Um, a lot of people are uh, creating content and putting out content, but um, do you feel that having that background really helps to uh, translate some of the science or to, to better communicate that, even if it is to people who aren't necessarily from that background? I do. I think one of the things I tell students who come to me who are in a master's or undergrad now, who want to do kind of that translational type aspect or just have a good foundation. I say, all right, go get some lab experience because if you've ever been in a lab, um, just pipetting, for example, is kind of difficult to learn how to do. Much like in an applied science lab, we know how to do one RM, but if you look at some other outcomes like ultrasound, like that, that takes some practice. Um, or uh, you can put someone on a biodex and measure kind of isokinetic strength. Um, so all that takes practice takes experience. You learn the nuances of it. Um, so I think it's beneficial for everyone. I don't think it's required, but I think you could be better off by doing it. Yeah. And some of the work that you put uh, put out recently, I guess that's, um, you've, you've put out that work or you've, you've done that research along with some of your colleagues and uh, because you've had this interest in bodybuilding, right? Cause uh, recommendations for physique athletes isn't something necessarily that any kind of, uh, scientist is going to put out, right? Yeah, yeah, that, and that's that's correct, and that's kind of where I'm trying to go is um, more more nutrition realm a b 
because I, I have, don't have as strong of a background or I wasn't trained formally as like a nutrition researcher. Um, so that's one area I'm kind of bulking up on. Um, and then, you know, my interests, right? I mean, when you get a chance to collaborate with the two Eric's and uh, Peter, you know, you, you have to take it. And um, I think it was just a great opportunity. There's some really, really good scientists too. Mm. So talk us through the process of uh, what went into actually developing this paper. I know that in in 2014, uh, Eric Helms, I can't, I can't remember if it was with Peter Fishing as well and some others, maybe Alan Aragon, have uh, released a, a similar paper um, and it was kind of like the first of its kind where um, we didn't really, we kind of were just picking different pieces of papers and, and just, you know, using anecdote and hypothesizing what would be the best strategy for, for physique athletes. Um, but we didn't really have anything collective or in one kind of guideline or one paper and and then eric released that in 2014 but now we have this updated version or i don't know if that's what you want to call it but it's in the introduction you've mentioned that you're you're building on that 2014 paper from eric so talk us a little bit through uh, what what went into this process why did you feel like you needed to give this recommendations or or develop this paper and then what has changed from 2014 to 2020 over those six year period yeah, so I, I reached out to everyone else on the paper, basically, at the beginning of 2019. And I said, hey, guys, um, you know, Helms kind of broke ground on this idea of giving average people who may not understand everything in the science, but have a good science background, um, some knowledge on how to compete, prep, and all this other stuff. Right. And so I kind of was, I re- read the paper probably 10 to 20 different times. And I'm like, all right, this is really good. It's actually split into two papers. So we didn't do a training um, paper, which is helps in another paper with the physique type training. Um, but I said, you know, we've, we've gained quite a bit of knowledge in the past six years, right? Five, six years. Um, some of that is on the protein guidelines. Um, some of that, not as much of that is on the uh, like carbohydrate guidelines, uh, the fat intake actually had, I really dove into the, the fat recommendations because I saw what people were citing to say, you know, low fat, low fat causes, um, low testosterone, just the intake of low fat causes that. And I was like, I don't think that's true. And so it turns out, at least my interpretation is that it's more the low energy availability or the low calories that's causing that drop in testosterone that we see. Um, probably also reduction in body fat, right? Um, there was you know, a couple different other sections that we kind of know now, um, like the ketogenic diet section, where I, I don't know if that's as relevant um, in terms of, we kind of know most bodybuilders aren't doing ketogenic diets, most of them. Um, but I do have another paper coming out with um, Adam Cesar of SciFit.net on physique athletes in the ketogenic diet. So if you care a lot about keto, that'll be out eventually. Um, and then, you know, the meal frequency, different aspects. I think Eric Helms really wanted to uh, have a chance to talk about the mental side, which we've learned so much on the mental side of bodybuilding. Like anecdotally, you'd sit there and go, yeah, you know, I've been through a couple of reps. I know that um, it's hard. Uh, you have body dysmorphia, you have all of these issues, but nobody had really formally laid out everything clearly. Um, so that was another thing we wanted to put in. 
supplements, you know, creatine, beta alanine haven't changed too much. Um, kind of modified a few of those. But then the post-competition period was a, a big focus for us. It was, all right, now I'm, I've, I've, I've done my prep. I've done a 20-week prep, right? And now I'm super lean. How do I come out of that without kind of ruining my body, my mental state, and um, those types of things? So th those were some of the big hitters. I think um, there's a lot of sex differences stuff, which is kind of like my niche. Um, that also were apparent as new research started coming out. Um, or just we had more information about female physique athletes. So yeah. Think, yeah. So if we get into it, I guess if you were because you're a coach, right, as well at the strength guys. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but I guess a lot of the the recommendations in this paper, you're going to practically apply these to uh, competitive uh, athletes, whether they're bodybuilders or or physique or or compete uh, bikini or or whatever category it is. And when we when we talk about recommendations here, we're specifically talking about recommendations for people who want to get on stage, right? They're going to kind of be as lean and as big as possible. We're not giving recommendations here for basketball players or, or football players. Right, right. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when you, when you're starting off, say a, and in the context of this, of these recommendations, this paper, when you're starting off a diet or um, a strategy for say a, a 30 week or six month prep or whatever it may be, what, what are the things that you would start off with? Do you, do you, do you start with the order of of their, the way that they're laid out in the paper? So you first look at um, protein intake and then you could fat intake or carbohydrate intake. And how do you kind of specifically adjust those numbers? Because I know within the paper, for example, there's there's ranges of recommendations. Right. Um, so I do start out with protein. I think it's uh, the most important macronutrient for physique athletes for sure. Um, so I start and I kind of, if I'm intaking an athlete, I'll say, all right, how much protein are you eating? Because usually, as the paper says, bodybuilders are, are fine. Like, they're they're within the ranges already. And so we might start off with, you know, two grams, or sorry, one gram per kilogram. Or, no, two, two grams per kilogram. Wow. One gram per pound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know you're in the U.S., yeah. <laughs> right. It's funny, uh, actually, the way that, uh, I'm just wondering, just based on your experience, over the over the years of being like a you know a scientist, why is it that recommendations or papers are always nearly in the metric system? They're using like kilograms and grams, but then you know they're often developed or written by or published by U.S. Um, researchers and journals. I, and it, pounds. It's a um, it's a formatting thing that journals make you do. Um, so they they really like to be consistent, and if you just use metric, which I think. It, better system in general um it it translates easier um that's the best explanation i can give Th that's fair enough and it's pretty straightforward <laughs> and simple <laughs> yeah yeah um anyway so in taking an athlete check normal protein intake make sure it's okay um, i usually won't change that if i think it's within the ranges i like to be on the upper end um at least in the beginning and then we'll go to carbohydrates, make sure that there's not a, like, they're not taking in 150 grams of carbs at the start of a prep, right? As long as they're above 250-ish grams or somewhere around there, I'm okay with that. And then I'll look at the fat. And I'm a proponent of 
a little bit lower fat intake than most people, even in, in bulking. Like if you look at my um, muscle growth guidelines on medium, like I, I, I towards I usually tend towards carbs. So most of the time I pull people's fat down. I'm like, all right, let's get in, you know, around 60 grams of fat if you're an average male. Um, average females, you can go a little bit lower to start out with. Um, so then we start there and we see, you know, we need to be in a caloric deficit. Where are we pulling those from? Well, we'll pull a little bit from the carbs and fat and see how you respond. Some people respond really well to pulling out fat. It's like they don't even notice. Some people um, do really poorly with pulling out carbs, um, myself included, where you just get like angry all the time, uh, which you don't want to do at the start of prep. Yeah. That seems like um, seems like a different, a slightly different approach than than what people would traditionally do. They would, well, well, obviously protein would obviously be set first normally, and then people would think, well, because carbs are not necessarily essential nutrient, and they can kind of be created by uh, uh, from fat or from uh, protein, that people that will then set their protein intake, um, either like say half a gram per per kilogram of body weight or one gram per kilogram per body weight I should say um, and then and then the kind of carbohydrates will fill the remainder of the calories but like you alluded to at the beginning of this conversation that um, I think a misconception that a lot of people had and I certainly had this um, when I kind of first started getting into the, the science quote unquote um, many years ago was that uh, testosterone was uh, linked to intake of fat and I think it was specifically saturated fat but when you when you look at the, the research, I think it's it's only very limited in terms of if you reduce your testosterone, you reduce your saturated fat intake, you have a slight, but I don't know if it's even clinical significantly in terms of reduction in testosterone. So yeah. what did this paper kind of find, or what what did you guys find when you're looking into all of the literature around low fat intakes? Um, I guess the best kind of scenario would be to measure this to measure low fat intakes in somebody who wasn't like a contest level you know body fat because everything kind of gets messed up when you're that low but if you're just like normal body fat and then eat really low fat then you'd have a, a more kind of a clear picture of whether actual low um low fat intake uh, equals a lowered testosterone or, or you know lowered hormone profile right and um the literature that most people reference is i think it's starts with that H, um, the author, but it's from the 80s. And basically what they did was, um, and I haven't read this in a little bit, so you have to bear with me, but they put these guys, these men, middle-aged, upper middle-aged men, so like 55-year-old men, on a diet, and they saw um, a drop in testosterone. But when you look at how much of a drop it was, I think it was like 10 or 15%, it was not what we would call practically significant it's like okay well i went from that's the equivalent of going from like 400 nanograms per deciliter to 350 right that's probably not going to make a big difference um and then jumping off of that there's a lot of research like if you think of the diet wars right low fat low carbs uh, keto what's you know what's best um, for fat loss normally those people are, are a little overweight or obese even but you can get a good idea of how testosterone is acting during that process too, and it, it doesn't really change much. Um, so using those kind of a few studies, uh, we decided that it 
it's probably not as big of a deal as people think. Um, that's not to say I want you to go out and do 10% of your uh, macros from fat for uh, six months. That, that might be a little extreme. But, you know, we have some ranges to work with. And don't be scared to go to those lower ranges because if you're going to compete at the you know, WBF like Worlds, you're going to have to go low. Yeah, and I think, uh, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but right, you probably set your carbohydrate intake um, specifically for bodybuilders because you want to maintain training performance. And I think I've talked to, to others about this before is that you know, when you go low carbs, um, and I would actually like to, you know, hear this, um, or see the paper you're writing with the, with the, or the podcast, is it that you're with regards to the, the ketogenic diet, um, how performance is actually affected in terms of a dieting bodybuilder, because, you know, if you're so low on glycogen, perhaps that may affect your gym performance and that may lead to, um, you know, more muscle loss than if the calories are the same, but perhaps carbohydrates are higher. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I think it would be really hard to test that from a scientific perspective. I, I agree with your concept, though. The concept being that we're dieting, especially towards the middle of slash end of prep. Um, our glycogen is already depleted. Um, now we're throwing in more cardio. We're not eating as many carbs. You get this just compounding effort. And you go to train, and glycogen replenishes very quickly. It's like 24 hours. You could deplete 40 to 50% of it. The standard study is like these people did a, a super high volume workout, took biopsies before and after, and said, oh, look, this is a more than a bodybuilding style workout for the legs. And they only lost 40% of glycogen. So that replenishes quickly. Everybody will be okay. right? But those people weren't dieting. They weren't doing cardio. They weren't having all of these other factors. So if we can have more carbs, I think we know that makes training better, which probably does, like you said, um, help retain muscle. So that's kind of my thought process with it. Yeah, so I, I guess, if, I don't want to be jumping around too much, but with regards to fat, there's probably no lower limit necessarily, and I guess we have their essential fatty acids but most people probably won't get that low. But then what would your thoughts be then on dieting uh, for a natural bodybuilder on a ketogenic diet? Uh, let's say it's per personal preference or whatever. Do you think that there would be any different outcomes over a, you know, a longer period? And I, I get it's going to be purely hypothetical just because no two people are the same and, and you know there's so many moving parts. Uh, but what would your thoughts be on you know v very low carbohydrates, lower than 50 grams or whatever will put you in ketosis? and then keeping fat uh, as high as needed to be while still losing body fat? Um, I don't think you would see a huge difference. You know, you got proteins equated. Um, if the person is, we'll just say average person, right? If they're keto already, they would probably do a lot better than someone who was just going into keto for a prep, right? That's pretty obvious. Um, now, if you think about muscle loss, I can't say definitively that they would have less or more muscle loss or maintain this, you know, the same amount of muscle. And I don't think we would honestly be able to test that well. So I'm, I'm not going to recommend Brandon, it. Brandon, your mic has just got a bit uh, 
Muffle there. Oh, sorry. Um, there we go. Yep. Let me get a little closer to it. Um, so I think that people who start a ketogenic diet are probably not going to do well. But if you're already on a keto diet, you will probably do as well as someone who is just kind of lowering their, their carbs or doing a more natural prep. Um, I would love to see a study on that, obviously. I don't think that's really feasible, um, or we'll mm. see that in the next 10 years probably, uh, just because it's so hard to do a physique athlete studies, and then B, if you throw ketogenic yeah. on top of that, you're, you're not looking at many people. Yeah, I think it was like 2019 where the, the Gartner study from Stanford was like the first one that actually compared low fat and low low fat versus low carb where everything else is matched like protein calories and the you know there was I think one group lost on average 12 kilos and the other was like 13 but that was just like you know average like it's just a non-bodybuilding people but to try and get bodybuilders to do it it's a lot more difficult I would say and getting enough of them yeah and I and to give you an idea of kind of the other side of the world um so I sit in a lot of meetings or seminars with these people like Gardner who are big time researchers in weight loss and um, trying to solve or at least help in the obesity crisis, right? And every time that I sit in some of these, these places, they're like, well, Brandon, you, you compete. What, what is it about bodybuilders that makes them able to do this extreme stuff for so long? And I, usually look at them and I say, I am not sure, but if we could get the general population to do that, I, I don't know that it would be like great. It would be okay, but I don't know how it would go long-term. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's it, bodybuilders are obviously kind of strange in themselves. If you're going to get up on stage and paint yourself with like this gold tan and then wear a posing trunks in front of people, it's, uh, you know, that's um you know kind of abnormal anyway so i don't think you can really compare average people or everyday people to to what bodybuilders do yeah definitely so then i guess when it comes to we kind of covered off protein i guess you know protein intakes i think it was between 1.8 and 2.7 grams so it kind of falls in line with the you know what bodybuilders traditionally do like one gram per pound of body weight right it's probably probably best for most people um you said carb intake, is that based off body weight or is that just, you said above 250 grams, I guess it's going to be somewhat related to body, body and body weight. Yeah. So it'll, it, I'll start within the range. I don't like to change, um, people's carbs too much to start out. Um, because they're just kind of like, when you start a prep, you're like, okay, well let's get some baseline data. Let's make sure you're doing everything properly. Um, independent of like if you're an elite bodybuilder who's done this a million times, maybe you have different circumstances. So uh, as long as the carbs are within the range and the fat are within the range, um, I will more likely change the fat than the carbs. Gotcha. So um, I, I guess it's, it's definitely going to be va varied between people because just the amount of uh, the difference in metabolisms, they're the, how they react to eating more or less carbohydrates and how the, that affects their need etc their training volume um 
and then fat like you said it's there's there's a range what was that range again that would fat is there a specific amount that you say you would an, an upper level or a lower level or do you just balance that within the calories then so we recommended like 10 to 25 percent of your calories now if you look at the recommendations you're, you're probably thinking well brandon you gave one in grams per kilogram you gave protein and carbs in that why didn't you do it for fat um and that's because we didn't have a great enough rationale to say, oh, you need to be in this range. But if I had to give you a range, I would say bottom line, um, 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight and upper, you know, is 1.5 grams per kilogram. And that, that range is, it's very tight, right, compared to the others, but calories are also, there's more calories in fat than anything else. So that's why it's a little bit tighter of a range. Yeah, and do you like do you break that down into specifics and this is probably very nuanced but specifics of um you know saturated fat intake or do you just recommend like healthy eating patterns where you're trying to not eat too much saturated fat and then get a lot of get enough polyunsaturated fats etc yeah so i don't i won't give recommendations for like saturated unsaturated fats i that's not my wheelhouse i think having a diverse diet is enough i will you know input your macros that you can get an idea and as long as there's nothing that sticks out and says oh all of your fat is saturated fat then i'm usually okay with it but as you know the more you get into prep the more kind of healthy and less saturated fat you'll probably be eating Um, so i don't worry about it too much and i'm not had any issues with any athletes or anything yeah and i think just like you mentioned there something that you inadvertently do as you prep and you try and increase, um, you know, the food satiety, um, or you try to eat more filling foods or more high volume foods. You just end up eating healthier foods, like more foods that have uh, less ingredients and not necessarily that they're necessarily bad, but foods that are just typically less calorie dense are going to be more like fruits and vegetables. And you're going to be eating less processed foods or, uh, you know, high calorie dense foods. And I've found that on the reverse because I'm like, I don't know, maybe four or five months removed from a prep, that my desire just to eat healthy foods has uh, has decreased or to eat higher amount of um, fruits and vegetables. My Even my palate has, has changed. I don't know if you've experienced that. I know it's kind of a little bit off topic, but have you experienced anything like that yourself? Oh, definitely. It's, I will say my prep diet is very typical, like bodybuilding, like, you know, tuna, chicken breast and things that are filling, but also nutrient dense like sweet potatoes and and oatmeal and stuff like that. Um, But as I come out and I am, let's see, I could be in September. So what's that like seven, eight, eight ish months out, something like that. Um, So I'm, I'm completely back to normal. And yes, I eat all kinds of different foods. I have pretty standard like breakfasts and lunches just because they're convenient. Um, but my dinners, yeah, I, I eat a lot more pizza now than I used to. Mm. <laughs> um, so things like that. Yeah. Um, with regards then to, say, nutrient timing, uh, there's, I guess over the last few years, there's been like, I think when it was, when we think back to like bodybuilders back in the day that didn't really focus practices on, on science or we didn't have the literature, uh, there was a lot of, quite a focus on meal timing, uh, eating, you know, maybe six or more meals a day. And then, as kind of literature, more literature came out, um, meal timing, I suppose, 
lost a bit of importance in terms of of you know how how much impact it has on overall say body composition um but what what's your thoughts or, or what what do you guys recommend with, with regard to specific meal timing whether that's like protein timing or uh, peri-workout nutrition timing or even you know you, you know, separating your calories out throughout the day and do you have specific recommendations or thoughts on, on how important that is and, and what would be the best structure for somebody to do well so this is this is an ever-evolving area um, because even like in the past year some of the intermittent fasting data has suggested that meal timing for body composition outcomes at least uh, you got a lot of freedom but if you're a physique athlete you want to get every single ounce that you can right? Every little percentage point you want it. Uh, and so if we look at our recommendations and what bodybuilders kind of naturally have always done somewhere between four to six meals a day, um, you probably want to get around 40 grams of protein per meal. So that you have that nice, um, NPS response across the day. Um, you probably want to, as you get deeper into prep, put your carbs more around your workouts so they're used for you know, training rather than just kind of sitting around. Um, I, I really like to see in my athletes even distributions of calories with probably like 10% more on either side of the workout. Right? And so that generally gives you plenty to do and plenty to eat throughout the day. Mm. And and maybe I don't know if you've done any kind of this work yourself, but my rationale always around um, post workout nutrition, or at least say pre and post workout nutrition with regards to carbohydrates was, even though it, you can resynthesize glycogen, I think what you say within twenty four hours or insulin sensitivity is increased for up to twenty four hours after within the muscle after training. Right. I guess that's going to be you know heightened. Uh, directly after training and and then slowly decrease um after training all the way through that say 24 hour period i'm wondering what your thoughts are on say uh, keeping carbohydrates close uh like very close within like you know an hour or so of training and um, given that even if you may not be using that muscle group again like you mentioned earlier you're not like squatting again six hours later or sprinting or whatever would insulin sensitivity within the muscle uh be higher um you know closer to that workout about yeah, so I think it is, and I I started to dig into the insulin sensitivity literature um, recently. I haven't quite finished because I got sidetracked with the muscle protein synthesis literature. But um, I I think that's probably better um, from a not just physiological perspective, whereas maybe it's more of those carbs are getting shuttled into the muscle, but also from a perspective of you know I'm a bodybuilder, I'm gonna go pose or I'm going to go at least kind of flex in the mirror a little bit. And it helps me mentally to be able have a little more um, of a full muscle around my workouts or you know, later in the day after my workouts, something like that versus you know, having carbs completely spread across. So there's, there's multiple aspects of possible benefits and there's not really any detriments so that's that's the other thing when you if you don't have carbs you don't have glycogen you're running on fat right so we normally run on fat just sitting around like us talking right now mostly fat oxidation um and 
So we have the opportunity to shift those carbs and it's not going to really do anything bad to us. And it, if it's even possibly helping us, we want that advantage. Hmm. So, so protein intake, you want to be spreading that out across at least four meals a day to get that. I think some of the work had, had shown that I think 40, like you mentioned, 40 grams had uh, maximized most protein synthesis, but n- not less than that doesn't mean that you're not achieving most protein synthesis, right? You're just not, just not maximizing it and again um the literature and maybe you can uh, chime in here but uh, because i haven't really looked at the literature lately but uh, that there's probably more literature needed based on body weight so like 40 grams of protein uh, to maximize most protein synthesis is not going to be the same for a 130 kilo uh, bodybuilder stepping on mr olympia stage versus a female who's you know uh, 45 kilos yeah so there is one study because I, I kind of think the same type of thing, because there's literature to show that if you stimulate more muscle, then you probably need more protein, um, like if you do legs versus if you're just doing arms or something. Um, but the only study that's done those differential lean body masses, right? So kind of like your example, they did, I think, 57 kilo male and a 75 kilo male. So not extreme, but, you know, a good difference. And they found that lean body mass given 20 or 40 grams of protein after a workout, did it? It wasn't really different. Um, and that's kind of surprising, but that's all we have to go on, off of right now. So I actually um, steer a little bit more away from prescribing protein through lean body mass measures. I just, it's hard for people to get that. Um, so I don't know that we could say for, for sure that larger people will need more protein in terms yeah, of that's interesting in yeah. terms of the uh, mps yeah, response yeah. yeah yeah so like so I, i'm kind of banging my head against the wall over the last few weeks trying to understand literature around protein synthesis so my thoughts based off what you're saying there is like well if if we only need a certain amount to um and i think uh jordan tromlin had um published some work on this as well and it just led to more questions is that if we only need a certain amount of protein, let's say it was 40 grams that maximized it for regardless of weight, then, and it didn't really matter, then why is it that we recommend more protein uh, based off of body weight? So if you're heavy, you're, you're going to be eating more protein if we can only maximize muscle protein since it's at 40 grams. Does that mean then that, that heavier people would need to eat more meals because they're only maximizing muscle protein synthesis or they're topping it out at 40 grams of protein per meal so a heavier bodybuilder let's say uh, 240 pounds would have to eat more meals because they they would be eating more protein in the day so 40 grams of course separated out across the day would equal more meals for a larger bodybuilder versus somebody who would only need to eat like 150 grams of protein per day yeah so there is a pretty large disconnect here and this comes up a lot um so we covered it a little bit in the paper. I've gotten some private messages and that kind of spurned my deep dive into the muscle protein synthesis literature. But what we see basically is like you said, we see an increase in MPS and then it comes back down, but the MPS response, depending on the protein type, um, so whey would be a quicker up and down, uh, a mixed meal would be a longer increase, but maybe not as high. Um, and it's slower on the downhill. 
So what we see is these things don't, they don't match up and we don't really know why. Um, but from a recommendation perspective, I think as long as you're evenly spreading out your protein and you're hitting that kind of you know, 1.82 or 2.2 grams per kilogram, whatever, um, you're, you're safe. I, I honestly am still struggling to find a great answer. I can tell you that there have only been a couple studies using what we call mixed meals. So like lean steak, like what a bodybuilder would eat. Okay, so we have probably like two studies in that. And they figured out that you're still around that 40 grams for maximal muscle protein synthesis, but it seems to last much longer. And there's also some differences in the studies in the time that they take measurements. So if, if I am doing a study and I measure muscle protein synthesis for four hours and they give you a mixed meal and it goes up and it starts to come back down, great. Okay, well, I can say this dose is better. Now, if I do a different study using the same doses and I measure eight hours or six hours, um, you're probably going to see the same response, but you may see a different magnitude. It may come down a little bit later than you expected or a little bit sooner. So we don't we don't really know why this is happening. I think it's important to remember that there are things outside of muscle. So now we've gotten very specific. We're looking at muscle uh, protein synthesis, whereas we have the gut, you know, we have other systems. All this other stuff is, is using protein. Um, so yeah, I don't have a great answer and I, and I wish I did. Yeah, that's definitely some area that I would like to see some more research on because, like you said, it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense at the moment. Um, so we did talk about perhaps positioning protein or, or spreading it out throughout the day and that perhaps is optimal in order to maximize different bouts of muscle protein synthesis as well as perhaps distributing your carbohydrates preferentially pre- and post-workout um, for performance reasons and perhaps for insulin sensitivity reasons but it's not that important however what do you think or what did you guys mention in the paper around distribution of fat and is that important is it more important to have higher fats in the morning or higher fats in the evening do we want to avoid fats around the workout what were your guys thoughts when you were looking into the research here and what were your recommendations um i would say that one as far as we know, because this is the one we know the least about now, um, you would want to keep more evenly distributed. Uh, so those critical processes that are happening um, with kind of your fat intake are able to constantly be happening, right? So um, we know around our workouts, we need maybe a little more protein to enhance muscle protein synthesis where there's not a whole lot going on with fat. I mean, there's a hormonal response, but nothing that we would really need to say, oh, I want 25% of my fat before or after my workout. I think it's safer to just have it spread evenly across the day. Um, but there's very little, little data on that. Yeah, I think that for fat, it's probably the macronutrient that I least pay attention to in terms of distribution. The only thing that I do um, or I, I'm cognizant of is trying to reduce my fat intake pre-workout if if just making sure that I'm not, I don't have a ton of fat pre-workout because that can potentially upset your stomach because it's, it slows down the digestion of of the meal that you've consumed so that's all I, I really think about uh, fat 
I suppose, distribution throughout the day. But tell me, Brandon, about the supplements that you guys looked into. Was there any specific supplements that you looked into with regards to um, and, and perhaps improving fat loss or, or supplements that we don't really tend to think of when it comes to fat loss? And what were, what were your guys' take on that? Um, were you just looking at the, the main kind of supplements that are heavily researched or did you look at some uh, outliers or perhaps extra nuanced supplements that we don't typically hear of? So we, we really focused on the um, kind of heavily studied the more evidence-based supplements and i mean you know trexler is the supplement guru right or expert or researcher um so this was this was his baby and creatine we know works really really well so we we're like well we got to have that in don't be scared to have creatine up to maybe like all the way through prep like even even during peak week like so you don't have to pull it there's no real data to suggest that you need to pull creatine out. Um, so we wanted to put that in there and, and kind of cover our bases. Caffeine, obviously I'm a caffeine junkie, but caffeine helps. And we actually, there were some, so I, I frequent the, um, the Reddit natural bodybuilding uh, forum, but there was some debate on our level of caffeine. And I think it is a little bit high um, on the recommended kind of dosage, kind of, you know, we get, we say three to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight of caffeine. Um, one hour prior to exercises are like specific recommendation. And that's because that's what the literature suggests is the range, right? There's, there's also not a lot of caffeine, um, research in resistance training. So we kind of had to extrapolate, extrapolate a little bit, but we know caffeine works. We know creatine works. Um, the nitric oxide stuff, I'm not as familiar with it. Um, but to touch on two of the more, um, maybe novel supplements that we did mention, uh, we also put beta, beta alanine in there and most of physique athletes kind of know nitric oxide, beta alanine, those things, caffeine, creatine are generally safe and good. Um, but the more novel things we put in there were the beetroot juice. So there was just a study just came out after we published this actually that showed um, you could do more reps if you took beetroot juice uh, before a workout. Similar to creatine. I think it was like a rep and a half. Um, there's also some evidence to suggest uh, carbohydrate mouth rinsing could be beneficial. And these are pulled from the endurance literature. And now people are starting to do them in the resistance training literature, maybe not in the physique literature exactly, but those are some things that maybe people haven't heard of that may be worth either digging into or um, even trying. So those are the, those two novel ones that I, I'd like to point out. The rest are, I hate to say it, but they're very well known and very basic. So did you guys see the benefits from the beetroots from the trimethylglycine, the TMG, or the nitrates itself, or was it specifically due to the consumption of beetroot vegetable itself? So it, it's actually um, more to do with the beetroot itself. Uh, they've done some studies, um, I forget the expert in this area, but where they've tried to match um, the different components of it and take one out or put one in. And it seems like beetroots themselves, there's something beneficial about the 
complex of them. Um, again, I'm I'm not super familiar with that area, um, so you know, kind of hedge a little bit there. Yeah, I did see some of that research before, and when I had the calories, um, when I wasn't like at the end of my diet, I was drinking beetroot juice because I absolutely hate the taste of. Uh, beetroots itself so i did try to get in some kind of 100 percent beetroot juice but um I, I don't know if i noticed any huge difference from from consuming uh beetroot juice itself perhaps better slightly better gym performance but there's so many moving parts it's hard to say yeah and and those are so like you're really scrapping for that one percent there right so and that's okay um but as if you want to fulfill your you know bodybuilding kind of goals sometimes you gotta do that yeah, and as I've got older and you know just had more experience with bodybuilding per se, I've learned to realize that you know supplements are really don't make a huge difference and it's more about just being consistent with the basics like sleep, um, stress reduction, um, being on, on track with your nutrition, your training and your recovery and like it's hard to kind of sometimes focus on those because supplements they're like something you can trade something like you can trade money for a supplement and you can you know objectively take something almost like you do in biomedical science we take uh, a drug or a medicine and it has immediate impacts but it's it's just not the same with over-the-counter supplements in natural bodybuilding yeah exactly um and i mean most bodybuilders i mean you know later in life you have more money in general, right? But are either college or right out of college or young professionals who, you know, that, that money matters, right? If it's not going to give a, a good benefit, then I don't really want to take it. Yeah, I think I've spent thousands on supplements, many of that, much of that money, useless supplements. And I remember when I was younger, I used to like get the bus up to a, a supplement store and spend hours in the store, like waiting for the guy to be free to talk to him. And ultimately, you know, he would try and sell me something um, every every week, a new supplement because, well, he'd make money off me, but then also because he probably didn't know any better than, than myself in terms of yeah, supplements. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the first debt that I ever had before I even ever had a job, I, I probably like maybe 16, 17 was like a hundred euro debt to my mother because I had borrowed like a hundred euro to go and buy like five or 10 kilos worth of protein. And I didn't even have a job to be able to pay that back. <laughs> it's a good debt. So Brandon, when it came to the length of the actual diet itself, how did you guys come up with the recommended strategy for uh, how long the actual diet should be? What was it based off of um, the, the time or the date of when somebody had a, a bodybuilding show? Or was it based off of body fat percentages that somebody wanted to get to? Or was it based off of a percentage of, of weight loss that needed to be sustained over a period of time? Was there specific strategies that you guys recommended or taught that were best in order for somebody to be able to maintain long-term fat loss while still um, not losing or, or not eating into uh, muscle reserve? Because as we know, uh, with natural bodybuilding, the likelihood is that you will probably lose some lean body mass and some muscle as well. Um, so it is, it's based off of rate of loss. Um, now there, there are a lot of factors that go into this, right? If you're leaner, um, you probably want to lose at you know, more towards the 0.75% body weight per week versus if you're 
coming out of a long um, bulk or maybe you're just a heavier 30 pounds over stage weight or something, you can get away with 2% of body weight loss per week. Um, so I think what's happened is over the past 20 years or 30 years maybe, um, bodybuilders have gone from this like, I'm going to crash diet in six weeks, I'm going to get shredded, I'm going to be miserable, I'm going to try all of these ridiculous things, and then I'm going to get on stage, and then I'm going to be done, and I can go back to my normal training. Um, and that's evidenced by just the level of conditioning that you saw, for example, at Worlds. I mean, people nowadays are so much more conditioned. Uh, and you need... Yeah, I remember the class that I competed in, uh, in at Worlds. Uh, the guy who came second, he actually probably should have came first because um, I, I think he wore like some form of dream tan or some tan that was banned that would like destroy the, the stage or destroy the the background or the the back room, etc., the venue. So he actually probably should have came first. But he was like the most shredded person I've ever seen in my life. This guy had like, he looked like an, an anatomy chart of, of, you know, on the wall that you have. My dad is actually a physical therapist and I just showed him some pictures and he, he's not actually into bodybuilding that much at all or he's not into bodybuilding full stop but he was like, oh, send me some screenshots of that. He wanted the, the photos because he had never ever seen like conditioning yeah. that like, in, in that depth so it's just crazy how conditioned and how, how in shape you have to be you, you almost have to be like at death's door these days in order to be competitive at the top level in natural bodybuilding sorry i went yeah. off on a little bit of a tangent there so what were you saying no you're good and and yeah so the level of conditioning is absurd now um and it takes longer to do that and we've kind of noticed in the literature that if you take a slower approach you seem to retain more muscle. Um, now that's not, there's not a whole lot of evidence behind that, but that helps guide us to say, all right, if we're in that one to 2% normally, and then we're kind of on the next level, even, uh, you know, someone who's been training for seven to 10 years, but maybe they haven't been a bodybuilder for much longer than that. Um, we can, we can dial that back a little bit. And not only are you going to maintain your muscle better, you're going to feel better. You're going to have better workouts. Um, you're going to hopefully install these habits that you can consistently week to week keep up with rather than, oh, I'm going to take a thousand calorie deficit per day and I'm going to jump on stage like they may have done in the older, older um, competitions. So I think that's where we're kind of coming from. So Brandon, we touched on on a little bit at the beginning of the podcast about how you guys focused a lot more on the psychological aspects of both the bodybuilding contest prep itself but then the post-competition period which wasn't really an area of focus in that 2014 paper uh, that Eric Helms had, had had published so this was like this is what you guys had built on that paper so can you talk to me a little bit about what you guys uncovered around how how bodybuilding prep itself affects uh, one uh, psychologically and then how perhaps the post-contest period affects somebody and what what did you guys uncover and what kind of new evidence did you guys put out there that hadn't been previously at least looked at in depth yeah so to sum it up um briefly uh, it it's draining right it's it's just mentally draining you're in a bad place if you're truly shredded at the end of a prep um so the goal is to 
not take the next week and binge, right? We don't want to do that. We can't, that kind of defeats the point of being a bodybuilder. Um, so when we're coming out of contest, we also don't want to, so we don't want to binge and we don't want to slowly reverse diet like too much. Okay. So once you start eating your, um, you know, your ghrelin's already high, your hormones are all out of whack. You, it, it takes independent of, um, how much you consume. It takes a certain amount of time just to get back to baseline, like baseline period. And that is according to the literature. Again, we don't have much, uh, is like six months. So in that six months for me to go to normal, I can either put on, you know, 15 pounds or 20 pounds, somewhere in there, or you know, 30 or 40 pounds sometimes, if you look at the extremes. And, and we want to kind of just get to a good mental place where we're not um, food focused, right? And you hear, you hear Helms talk about this a lot. Um, and it's just, we wanted to really lay it out how you would do that, even though when it would be funny if, if people saw the Google Doc that we were working on, us try to figure out, well, what's normal? Like, is it 20 pounds above stage weight? Is it 30 pounds? It kind of depends on uh, how lean you got, where you started, all these other factors. And we're like, well, we can't really give a great number. Like, we don't want to tell people, oh, you're fine at 25 pounds over stage weight. Well, we had to kind of say, oh, you're pretty much normal by six months if you've been yeah, I think that is the the Rosso paper that you're talking about, where they tracked a competitor, just one single competitor, uh, six months before and then six months after his his contest show. And I personally, for the first time ever in, in my bodybuilding kind of competitive career, um, didn't track anything at all coming out of my last show, which was November 18th or so. So I'm about like four, four or five months removed at the moment. And I found that it was a really helpful part of the the recovery process. Um, like as I've got older, I've really began to care less about what other people, other than the judges of the bodybuilding show themselves, think about the, my physique. So I don't really tie you know my emotions or self worth too much into that. So I just really my goal was to just like let's get recovered as, as much as possible, as fast as possible, and um, so that I can get into improving, build any the kind of lost muscle that I had lost throughout the prep and then get back into progressing so that I can get back on stage and, and compete uh, but with a better physique in a, a few years time so I, I didn't track anything I, I literally just um, ate what I wanted but ate smart you know I didn't want to eat like thousands and thousands of calories every single day albeit for the first week or two I probably did um, but within like a, a month or perhaps even less I had like no food focus whatsoever so I wasn't thinking about food Whereas in the past, when I tried to track macros coming out after a show, I would find that I would, you know, invariably go over the, the macros or the calories like a couple of times a week. I would feel bad about myself and, and that didn't help with the overall recovery process. So if I was to go back to November 16th or whatever it was and to start again this recovery process after the show i would do the exact same thing i wouldn't track any kind of macros and, and i think that's what i'll do for the future just not track but try be smart about my my food choices but i think that really helped the recovery yeah and i would say that's kind of the model of what we want i i will say i did track on the way out um i'm a little bit uh 
focused on data and science and write stuff. Um, so I wish I could take your approach and I, and I did probably the last couple months, but, um, I had to track, I have, I had really strong, um, food cravings and things. So it, it helped me to stay on track just to not eat like 3000 calories. Um, but ideally everyone takes your approach, right? Where you just kind of back off, you relax, you listen to your body, you adapt as you go. And as you age too, I've noticed that, um, people are more okay with how they look in general, right? So in the fitness industry, we have this kind of not issue, but, um, draw towards very nice physiques. And I will quote Omar Isaf and say, you know, you don't want to wear abs like an accessory all the time. It, it's not beneficial sometimes to stay lean. It's not beneficial to stay restricted and to really grow as a bodybuilder and a physique athlete, you need to be comfortable and do just like you said, only care about what the judges think. And that's really, really hard to do. I mean, I still struggle with it. Yeah. And it's not that I don't care whatsoever, because obviously as your physique fades, um, all the work that you've put in, it is hard to detach yourself from that because you have, you know, been working so hard to get a, a certain look. But I think, um, you know, for me, because I competed, like my first show was in July and then the last one wasn't until November, uh, trying to hold uh, low body fat for such a long period of time just meant that by November, my physique had actually looked worse. Um, meaning that like, I didn't gain any fat or anything like that, but I was, I was losing weight um, and I wasn't looking necessarily any leaner. So I was just losing uh, muscle. So basically I think that I had to accept in between that time that, you know, my physique was looking worse already. So it's, it's almost like I had experienced the, you know, the, the negative kind of physique aspects of, of coming out of a show before I'd actually even finished, like my physique was getting worse. And I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's definitely a lesson that I learned that, you know, probably not doing a six or five month period of, of shows um, is going to bring my best physique to the, the stage. Um, but but I guess everything is a learning experience. So you know, going back to the future, I probably wouldn't do as many shows or at least if I was to do as many shows, I would, I would try and condense that as short as period of time. But I think my first show in July, I looked pretty good. Uh, I had like the, the most amount of muscle, probably not as lean um, as, as I had got during the prep. But then September, I actually looked uh, probably my best and, and I did well in both shows in mm-hmm. September. I actually in both shows, I qualified for WMBF Worlds and I'd never planned to go and compete past September, but because I'd start, I was starting my master's and everything in September as well, but it, I just had that Worlds invitation and I thought that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, or, or perhaps I'm never going to get this experience or this opportunity to experience this again. So, you know, I kind of just, you know, dug down, dug deep and, and just kept going to, to compete. But ultimately I didn't bring my best package. Yeah. And I, I think the next step in, and I'm going to speculate a bit here in the bodybuilding world is figuring out what that point is where you do your two shows and then your third one, you just, you look bad. Like you look worse than your second one. Um, because, uh, so we were, I told you off air that, I was, or I may not have told you, coached by Jeff Alberts for a couple of years. 
Um, oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So he actually took me through my 2016 and 2019 preps. Um, so we were both coached by Jeff Alberts in 2016 when I competed last and 2019. That, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So, um, and you'll notice that some people, they'll hit that third show. Maybe it's the second show. Maybe it's the fifth show. Kind of just depends um, where they don't look as good because they've been dieting forever or there's life stress, or there's things happening alongside of prep. And I think what we're going to see is people figuring out like you kind of did that, you know, two shows, I'm good. Like I don't, I wanted to stop and I should have, but I got invited to the world. So obviously you're going to go and you're going to, you're going to do it, which, you know, I applaud that. Um, but there's a point and you just have to figure out where that is for yourself. And I have no science on that at all. Yeah, I think it's probably just something to do with just being lower body fat in general. Um, like as we've kind of mentioned that you, you lose some lean body mass as you prep, but there's probably a, a period or a point where your body fat is so low that it just has such negative impacts on your, your overall hormones and ability to just hold on to lean muscle mass. And I think that's probably what I experienced is because, you know, it was, it, it was, I, I held on to pretty much all my muscle or at least i think i did you know for the first show for the second show i probably did as well but then by the time i got to the third show and just that such long period of time that i just felt like i was hemorrhaging muscle at that stage so yeah it's probably pretty hard to uh to kind of come up with a study for that because you know you need to have specific bodybuilders and, and compete um over you know multiple shows over a year and, and to track that would be pretty difficult but um i I had chris barricat on um in a previous show do you have you do you know chris yeah i know chris yeah so i think we spoke about this a little bit as well because he was actually at the shows that i competed at he was at the july show and and the november show both in in the u.s and he kind of made a, a good point that you know when you're dieting down you you're you start to see like new progress every day every every week and you get this kind of motivation to keep pushing but when you get to like show condition shape there's a point where like you know you're just holding that and it's and you're not getting any better because you're already in that shape so it's hard to kind of motivate yourself to to go in and push hard and to keep you know going and doing heavy squats heavy deadlifts heavy lifting in general and i think that probably plays a part in some of the muscle loss as well just not having that you know intrinsic motivation anymore to keep training because you're not necessarily seeing any new progress but a final question for you, Brandon, before we wrap up, I, I know that your area of expertise is, is a lot around, uh, or I think you're doing some work on uh, the changes at a molecular level for training specifically. So I wanted to kind of get your opinion on cardio for exercise and or for contest prep. And I, I know you didn't touch on this within the paper and you mentioned that Eric had uh, done another paper for specifically for, for training. But um, with regards to cardio for uh, contest prep do you feel like there's certain types of cardio that one should probably avoid for the sake of interference like does high intensity cardio um affect uh, you, you know the the interference yeah. effect or have a greater interference effect or does lower intensity or does uh, moderate intensity cardio so what's your overall thoughts on that and i think i might have read something uh, recently by you put out there um around cardio for for fat loss specifically for minimizing say you know the interference effect and the interference effect being you know affecting muscles at a molecular level yeah so i think it is not 
in a peer-reviewed article, but I I did a, a series or more like two or three articles with um, Cody Hahn, who does some really good good work. <clears throat> and it's up on Stronger by Science. It's a little bit older now. I think that was like a year or two ago. Um, and we focused on powerlifters, but I think the same type of thing can be applied to a physique athlete. And that is, if you want to make sure, so the interference effect is very, very small. Um, it may be larger in like a physique athlete, much like it is probably in a powerlifter. Um, but if you want to just be safe, you would separate your cardio from your resistance training as much as you can. Um, preferably on, do it on off days or do it like in the morning if you train in the evening or vice versa, right? So you want to just kind of spread those out as much as you can. Um, and that's kind of the basics of it, uh, from a practical sense. The more molecular side is, you know, we want to, uh, elevate mTOR or activate mTOR. Um, that's what resistance training does, right? Now, cardio activates AMPK and for black, for simplicity's sake, they don't really like each other. Um, so they interfere and AMPK generally wins and it's also elevated longer. So that's the rationale behind, like, separate them as much as you can. So if there is a benefit to activating mTOR, you get the full benefit. And then, you know, if there's some benefit to cardio, which obviously there is, um, you kind of mitigate that interference effect. So do you think that there's a specific type of cardio that is perhaps better or has less interference effect? I know that high-intensity cardio... Uh, around the time of like Lane Norton when I started following him was really big and, and one of the reasons for that was because it had less interference effect than say traditional kind of uh, aerobic uh, lower intensity cardio. Right so there was a, a fascination with HIT a couple years ago during preps during in the physique world there's just this big fascination with HIT because it seemed to not interfere as much and that is true however if you are in a medium towards the end of prep and you try to do hit, it just sucks. So what I generally tell people is low intensity cardio. Um, again, going back to that old school incline walking. Sometimes I don't even give cardio. I'll just say, hey, you need to hit fifteen to seventeen thousand steps, and that's your cardio. As long as we're seeing weight loss, right? So you have a lot of flexibility, but I would, you know again, lean towards lower intensity. So you're not hurting, there's your chance of entry is lower, you're saving that energy for workouts um, and things like that. Yeah, I think when I do cardio for, for, for when I'm competing or in fact when I do cardio at all because I don't really like doing cardio, I actually play basketball sometimes or I at least I early again recently, but I always had done just steps and just walking I remember the very first prep that he did in 2013. Uh, that was a time when uh, HIT was really yeah. popular with, uh, at least in the natural bodybuilding circles. I was doing like HIT like four or five times a week on top of my training. And it was you know horrible because it's it's like psyching yourself up for another training session, but it's just nowhere near as fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, that goes a long way, right? Because if you, you want to keep competing, you don't want to have multiple miserable preps. Yeah. So Brandon, it's been great chatting to you. Thanks a lot for coming on. Where can people find more about you and your work? And uh, is there anything specific that you're working on right now at the moment? Yeah. So um, I do work for the Strength Guys. 
I am also right now writing for examine.com. Uh, their research review is just fun. My website is fitnessandphysiology.com. Um, you could Google me, Brandon Roberts, PhD, and get find most of my things. I have all the normal stuff, so ResearchGate, Facebook, Instagram I'm, is where most of my content is right now, just because that's the more um, powerful, popular platform. Um, so it's BRob21. And projects I'm working on now, we so we're in a pandemic, as you know, and it totally ruined one of my studies, and I'm a little bitter about it. Um, but it was a study with um, Army cadets and strength and conditioning and preparing them for their new um, test. So not really hypertrophy-based, but still a lot of fun. And then I'm also working in the ketone ester literature, or in the field. Um, so we have a study right now, which is why I was a little bit late to our, our call, where we're giving some mice uh, a ketone ester and seeing if it works to help body recomposition or body composition in general. Um, so I had a hypothesis and we're testing that. Um, other than that, I think I'm part of a overfeeding research study. I am on Kedrick Kwan's um, mentoring committee, which is really cool. Um, I don't know if you are looking to do a PhD, but if you are, you should definitely talk to him. And that's, that's probably about it. You know, staying plenty busy. So guys, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Brandon Roberts. If you want to check out that paper that we specifically talked about, just simply go to Google, type in nutritional recommendations for physique athletes. It is open access, meaning that you can get access to the paper for free. You don't need a, an access to a, a journal or be part of a university or anything like that. Um, it is pretty easy to read as well. And if you did like the podcast and want to reach out to either myself or Brandon, you can find all the con all our contact details in the show notes. And please, please do leave a rating and review. And if you want to send me any feedback personally, you can always do that. People have been doing that and I really enjoy getting the feedback from people. So um, thanks for listening in and I will chat to you again in another episode when we have another great guest on.